Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. I'm Andrei Krenkov, your host, and today I'm excited to be interviewing Max Braun. Max Braun leads the AI and robotics software engineering team at Everyday Robots, a moonshot to create robots that can learn to help people in their everyday lives. Previously, he worked on building frontier technology products as an entrepreneur and later at Google and X. Max enjoys exploring the intersection of art, technology, and philosophy as a writer and designer. Quick correction up front. I say several times uh, everyday robotics. That should be everyday robots. And Mario is a little sketchy in this one. Apologies. But I think you'll still enjoy the interview. And that being said, here we go. So uh, thank you so much for joining us for this interview, uh, Max. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Andre. Uh, I've been a listener of the podcast, so, so it's really great to be here as well. Oh, that's exciting. I don't think uh, <laughs> I've heard that before. Uh, yeah, so as usual, uh, the way we like to start is just to hear about your origin story of how you first got into AI and robotics. Sure. I, you know, I think if we, if we go back to the beginning, <laughs> I, I went to, to school in, in Germany and, and I studied physics first in, in Heidelberg. And that, that seemed to really resonate with, with my interests about, you know, science technology and sort of doing something deep and meaningful. Um, and I was, I was sort of on track to, to be a physicist and go into an academic career and you know, maybe hopefully become a professor maybe at, at some point in the end. And, um, and I was, I, I was kind of doing that while I think I know that I was really into engineering and computer science in particular. And I was kind of flying to myself, uh, uh, as I was, was doing physics. And this was in Germany when, before they had a pretty broad bachelor master's thing. So if you, if you got into like right after high school, you were in that until PhD. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so it's not sort of an undergrad situation. Uh, but then I decided to switch <laughs> and I switched to, uh, to computer science essentially. Yeah, um, how, how far along was that in your physics studies? I, I realized it pretty quickly, like after one semester, and then I, I did another semester just to prove that I could do it <laughs> to be like, okay, it's not because it's too hard, Max. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's because this is the right thing to do. And, um, you know, I, I missed all the cool part because then, you know, all my friends who I'm still in contact with, they all, they all went all the way through to their, their PhD in, in physics and, and they did a lot of cool stuff, which was way more interesting than the stuff you do in the, in the first year. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but I was, I was happy that I, that I switched and got a pretty solid, I think, computer science education in, in Koblenz, which is uh, a small university. Uh, but I felt like the, the atmosphere there and, uh, it gave me a lot of freedom to just explore and do the things I wanted to do because even, uh, and now we're starting to get sort of the curve to, to neural networks already is already when I was in, in Heidelberg doing, doing physics. One of the things I did is on my little laptop, I, I wrote a wrote sort of a little neural network that used the the, the the webcam to do some image recognition. And this was pre, you know, AlexNet revolution and, and all of that. So it was pretty primitive, um, but it kind of worked. You could hold up little objects. It was doing real time-ish 
um, and and it would would recognize them, classify them. So I already got the bug uh, of of ML and uh, yes, as a side project. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> there's always that that trend with you know yeah. some day job and a lot of different side projects. Yeah, but that was that was definitely something where you know it was quite primitive and not just something I hacked up on my computer, but it's kind of end to end in that I this was also pre TensorFlow or uh, PyTorch or whatever. Um, and so I wrote the whole thing in, in Objective C of all things at the oh. time because it was on, a, on Mac OS, uh, uh, and, and uh, that was fun though. And from from that, I, I ended up in a research group in an AI research group in um, in that university in Koblenz uh, with Ulrich Forbach, and and they happened to also have a exchange with the university in Osaka in Japan, mm-hmm. and and I got lucky enough to to, to get to go. So a few students got to go in, in, in our year, it was, it was two of us. And, and we went to, to Osaka doing research there. And this was Professor Ishiguro's group. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he makes these lifelike looking androids. Uh, and, and there were yeah, a bunch quite, of other people doing Quite famously, I think a lot of people have seen them. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy because if, you know, it's a very specific approach to robotics. And they're doing way more in, in you know, the teams I was working with too. But... But when you actually, you know, you see videos of these Android robots, they call them Geminoids, um, and you're like, okay, this is kind of so clearly Uncanny Valley. It kind of looks like people, but not. But when you're actually in the room with one of these, you really have this human presence feeling because, I don't know, because of all the things that come together, you know, they, they have some some actuation to move the, the chest up and down, and, and there's like subtle movements and it really makes you feel like even if you're not looking at it mm. <laughs> if you're, you're back turned again it kind of feels your, like a person your there. brain is just hardwired to mm. kind of exactly believe it yeah yeah so so that was that was super cool to be sort of part of that um uh area and this is between university of osaka and the atr uh research uh facility in, in kyoto so we uh looking at research there and my particular work at that time was mostly on simulation, actually. Um, we had this, this really interesting uh, human-inspired robotic arm with artificial muscles, so these pneumatic um, muscles, and they, they didn't have a simulator for this. And you know, if, you, if you take your, your simulator toolkit, uh, maybe, maybe today they have, but have it, but at the time there wasn't any primitive for something like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I created those that sort of sim to real system identification to have the force response of these uh, things. Uh, this was these, what, these elements. around 2006-ish or? Uh, when was this? Uh, yeah, exactly. Around that time. So 2006, we, I think I went back to Germany. This must have been 2007, 8 or something like that. Mm. Um, so it's kind of interesting now a decade later, uh, decade plus, you know, simulators are all the rage for robotic yeah. learning, but you exactly. got going on that kind of early. Yeah. So we, um, I'm sure we're going to get into, you know, what we do with simulation today quite a bit later, but at the time, you know, I was using ODE, if you remember that uh, <laughs> simulator framework, um, yep. uh, today, uh, we use with bullets mostly at work, um, but it was it was certainly even a few years ago you would still have people sort of talk about mm, should we do simulation of real robots and 
uh, I think I think it's it's about a good mix uh, of both, and you can do a lot with simulation, certainly. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, as a product of that exchange program, I guess how long were you in uh, Osaka, and you know, did you wind up just writing a full simulator? Um, you know, I, I was there for actually not that long, a little over half a year, um, <laughs> but it was quite the intense time because. You know, I was doing this this research project, which was, you know, writing a simulator, not rewriting a lot of the physics, but sort of uh, combining this for the research we were doing. I understand so long time ago, I vaguely remember what we were actually using it for, which was some <laughs> novel <laughs> novel control method. I think it was sort of simulated annealing um, inspired to to do some control of that robotic arm, and I think I threw that stuff up on GitHub, and you can can. See a little video of like the most it could do, which like was like move the end effect or the, the hand like to a roughly an area, and then you're like, mm. okay, great, I did that. So it's it's it was um, not not super advanced at the time. But um, the other thing uh, I did while while I was there is that the two of us um, who who went there, two students, actually started uh, a little company, um, not in robotics at all, because we were just interested in what was happening in this whole. Uh, Android, uh, iPhone, smartphone space, which was starting to happen around that time. Mm -hmm. And we were just looking at, okay, now you have this little platform, which has always on the internet, it has motion sensors, it has a camera, um, it has OpenGL on it. <laughs> and so we were kind of crafting a use case about making use of all these capabilities and created this augmented reality mapping application, turned into a little company that was eventually acquired by, by Google, and that's how I ended up at Google in the first place. So this was around, I think I ended up, this is I ended up happening in 2007, eight or so. And we quickly went back to finish up my master's because hmm. it was really close. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and that made immigration easier, <laughs> uh, among <laughs> other things. And and then, then I started at Google in um, 2009 and I've been there ever since. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a fun journey. You wound up getting into augmented reality also, you know, mm -hmm. uh, quite a bit. Now it's huge. I think at that point it was just starting out. So, um, yeah, interesting. And so it seems to me that once you got to Google, you were sort of working on sort of at least a few years in, you started working on very novel products uh, similar to augmented reality that have really were early tech that were not developed. So what was your journey from joining Google to winding up at Everyday Robotics? Of course, I, I think, you know, the interesting thing is at that time, I still had that image in my head of an academic career and, you know, at least to a PhD. And pretty quickly when I was at Google, I realized like, no, 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 this is the place where, where things happen. This is where mm -hmm. I want to be. And, uh, and it so happened that I joined around the time when when Google X became a thing. Like mm -hmm. that, that started around that time, and I um, initially I was on a team that was doing mapping and, and sort of AR stuff. I worked on mobile maps. Um, and Google and X also, is the uh, sort of moonshot factory for kind of wild bets for people. Who exactly. Don't know. Yeah. yeah. At the at the time, uh, so for your listeners, this is where the software and car project started, um, uh, which is now Waymo, and I think. Not just Waymo, but I think it really inspired the, the whole industry of software and car companies uh, going after this because they sort of saw that, 
okay, here's someone who's really going after this problem. Uh, after many years of research in that area, someone really trying to build a product. Um, and I see what we're doing now actually somewhat similar as there's been a lot of research in this field. And I think you really need to try to kind of make it happen in, in the real world. And so that's that's really what Google X was about. I think in the founding of Google X, that, that was one part you really want uh, a moonshot project, meaning some huge problem that exists in the world, some radical solution to solve that problem, enabled by some uh, breakthrough technology. And and those those three kind of always have to come together for, for Google, um, or what is now just called X projects uh, under the alphabet umbrella. And, and at the time, um, there's there's a lot there, and um, that the initial project I worked on, which was one of the first that was uh, pulled into this new Google X construct, was um, a visual search. So now you have uh, Google Lens, which you may may have used. Um, yeah, Google Lens just added uh, search with text and images, so it's uh, yeah. getting pretty exciting. Exactly. And again, and sort of the theme as we dis discuss history here a little bit, we were working on that uh, back then and it was much more primitive. It was really quite good at some use cases and not quite so good in a general sense. So we, you know, we were nailing, I don't know, wine labels, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, how often do you need to look up a wine label? And so, so now I think pre-deep learning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was all pre-deep learning. There were a couple of really dedicated, impressive pieces of infrastructure to do classification, annotation, and so on. Um, and you know, now, of course, ML since then has enabled uh, a lot more use cases and, and capabilities. This ML revolution kind of happened between that. Mm -hmm. So you started out working on this visual search. And then I think you, perhaps after that, wound up working on Google Glass. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think you know we were still working on visual search and AR was still also part of this. Um, AR in the sense that you know, when you use Google Lens today, you get this overlay over the camera image. And if you have a QR code, you know, it tracks sort of on the image, that kind of AR. And I think what we realized today, which is a problem that isn't solved yet, is that holding the phone in front of your face is not the best interface for this kind of information. Mm -hmm. What you really want is this just to be there. Um, and so we quickly got into wearables. And uh, I think that is still a problem that, that has a, a lot of potential. And you know, Google Glass was sort of a first attempt at really pushing for that and having a super lightweight version, um, tiny computer little display that, that's always with you and sort of really takes away the, the technology a little bit and, and get, gets out of the way. Mm, yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, Google Glass is uh, wearable glasses and there's a little screen up uh, on the top right, roughly speaking. So there's an overlay, as you say, that displays information in your field of view, which is what augmented reality pretty much is. Yeah. Exactly. And there's, there's a lot of interesting work happening since then. I feel like nobody has really cracked it yet, but a lot of people are very, a lot of companies are very serious, seriously in that space and trying to solve that. So I think that's, that's going to happen sooner or later in, uh, in a way that is, uh, more, it's smoother in an experience than, uh, what we're, we're able to do at the time. But then, um, you know, Google X was also just like a very vibrant place. So this project was happening there, but also Google Brain. Uh, as it was called at the time, now just part of Google research, uh, this whole, you know, can we actually do large scale deep neural networks? Um, and I remember when, you know, Jeff Dean and Andrew Ng were sort of presenting on like, hey, we 
we found this cat neuron, <laughs> if you remember that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so it was a, a cool place to be at the time. And of, of course, the self-driving car project um, and, uh, and many other exciting things, balloons with the internet. And yeah, some really pretty wild projects, uh, some of which haven't panned out, some of which are in the process. I think Google Glass is still being applied in, in some settings. Um, it's kind of fun for me as someone at Stanford to, I guess, just think about this academia industry connection that has been forming for a while. And especially for Google, like the self-driving efforts were to some extent uh, launched by Sebastian Frun, who also worked mm -hmm. at X, and then Andrew Ang famously worked with Google on uh, starting Google Brain. So... Yeah, it's interesting, like you said, to try and make things in the real world. And some of these cutting edge, really, really challenging problems, it seems like, can sort of, there's been efforts to jump from academia to uh, Google, where you can actually try and make it real. So yeah. it's pretty cool. Exactly. And, you know, you mentioned Sebastian. I think that, that that's an interesting case because we worked fairly closely together on a lot of these projects, obviously. He initially, I think, had like a smaller scale sort of street view version um, outside and then really made it work um, the, the team at Google then um, really made it work at scale. And, and that's where the value is. You know, you can do an experiment of having Stanford campus digitized that has limited value. But if it's the whole world, like street view today, that's, that's really a game changer. I think so, similar with self-driving cars, you know, you have it on a on a test track or in the desert, if you remember the mm -hmm. uh, DARPA Grand Challenge that Sebastian and others were, were working on. And, um, and then taking that to be into a project at Google, at, at Google, at X, and um, really trying to make it work as a, as a product for people. And now we have uh, cars driving people in, in Phoenix, Arizona and in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. it's, it's quite exciting. Yeah, yeah. There's been an interesting kind of trend or several cases where you have these really scrappy prototypes like the DARPA challenge where a bunch of academic, uh, academic teams competed and basically hacked on top of different car platforms. And later in VR, you know, the first Oculus was completely hacked together. But just these initial, I guess... Um, examples that sort of show the vision and this might actually be possible then led to these efforts that you know billions of dollars a lot of new technology and that's, yeah tackling these really hard problems which has been really interesting so then you worked on google glass and so you've taken a bit of a break from robotics since working on it in your master's so how did you find your way back there? And when you were you sort of still thinking about it throughout this time? It was always in the background because in the end, what I, what I love working on is future technology mm -hmm. in, in all its uh, shapes and, and, and forms. And I think robotics is definitely up there. You know, we all want to be, I think, living mm -hmm. in a world where, where robots are, are way more present than, than they are today. And um, I think at the time, so, so I was working on Glass and after that worked in, in Google search for, for a little bit, but then around, you know, which is now six years, a little bit longer than that ago, 
um, this project um, that we're, we're on now on Robotics Inex sort of started to be taking on a shape that's similar to, to its current one. So we, we shaped things in uh, within X. And that's that's around the time that I joined that. And um, you know, I, it might be it might be worth talking about you know why we're working on robots <laughs> in general. Yeah. And I think maybe now me, can you can you provide an overview of everyday robotics? Uh, of course, yeah. yeah. I think so. It comes back to this. This is about our future. You know, yeah. the demographic changes across the globe are real. Uh, societies are getting older. We're living longer, but we also don't want to be working longer. <laughs> so there is this problem coming down the line. We have some time to solve it, um, but it's also a really difficult problem to solve. Um, and I think you know robotics can really clearly help with that. Um, and and robotics is not helping with that today in the degree that it, that it could. Meaning, robotics is. Is being used fairly broadly in a lot of different use cases in you know factories, warehouses, and so on, but it's really not in these everyday spaces that you and I live in. It's not in offices and homes to the degree that that it's really adding a ton of value. And um, you know, and why is that? Is it's because there's this gap in capabilities, um, especially in these unstructured environments like homes and offices, in these everyday spaces we live in. It's just a lot harder to do anything. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, it's one thing to to, to weld uh, a, a door uh, for a car, which is you know kind of similar from one door to the next, and it's a completely different problem to like pick up a cup which is on a table, which might be configured completely completely differently every time you see it. So, so there's that fundamental problem, and that's something I don't have to explain probably to most of you listeners who, mm -hmm. or anyone working in, in robotics certainly that. That is, this is just a huge challenge. Um, these these everyday tasks, and and that's that's the, the sort of huge problem we're, we're trying to solve. Yeah, you're really doing a moonshot there of <laughs> just solve this uh, you know huge problem of enabling robots to you know basically work in, in household environments and achieve the dream of Rosie the robot that I think everyone is familiar with. Yeah, and so we, we should talk a little bit a bit more about this because in the end, you know, I definitely want I definitely want a robot at home, you know. <laughs> <laughs> definitely want one that, that's helping us with everything. We I think there are a few steps along the way to get there. And you know, we're taking a very specific approach um, right now where we just like Safter and Carr said, like we, we have to actually go, you know, away from some roads some test tracks to every street sort of l4 l5 in those in the terms of these autonomy levels we we're saying that we really have to go after unstructured environments and um and there's sort of this sweet spot with offices where you know we're already in them <laughs> so that, that helps to you know if you build any product it helps that you interact with it every day mm -hmm. um and it, they're sort of in the sweet spot of of complexity and accessibility, so they're there. Uh, we we can add a lot of value in offices. There's a lot of different tasks that we can can do today, and that are actually useful. Um, and and we're we're building to in order to achieve that, we're building our own general purpose robot. And mm -hmm. you know, just to be, I think it's sometimes people get hung up on that general purpose terminology. And since you mentioned Rosie the robot, 
it's it's not an all-purpose robot. Uh, I think we're we're not trying to to go in that direction, um, but we are also very clear that's not a special-purpose robot. And as we talk through the different tasks that we're doing, maybe we'll see the, you know, pick pick one of those. Let's take a, a trash sorting, which is one of the I think the first one we might have made public back in 2019, maybe. Um, where we talked about this this one task that that our general purpose robots are doing, and that's going through offices, driving around, looking in the um, trash bins, and fixing mistakes. Basically, mm-hmm. if there is a bottle in the compost where it not does belong, or a compostable cup in the recycling, then it would look into that, grab that, and, and put it in the correct bin. And it actually has a big impact on sustainability because what we've learned in sort of diving deep uh, from a product point of view in, into those use cases that if, if there's one if there's one bottle, for example, in the compost, that whole bag now goes onto landfill mm-hmm. um, because it's such a difficult problem to sort of sort that out. And you could say like, okay, let's, let's solve this with robotics and we build a special purpose robots. People are doing that, companies are doing that and they build sort of trash sorting robots and they're really good at that. Um, they, they can sort that quickly, efficiently, but that is a is a big investment. It's not very flexible, and you know, when it makes sense, then you should be using that. But imagine having a robot you have anyway, because it's I don't know wiping your your tables already. You can quickly deploy it to this to this other task. I think you're completely you're suddenly in a completely different realm, quite similar to when we went from you know large dedicated mainframe computers to personal computers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and you know, now mobile phones and, and so on, which have all these capabilities. There's sort of general purpose in that sense, um, rather than, than being being specific to one task. So that's really core to to how we're thinking about solving solving this problem. Yeah, and, and this makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, you said we already are in offices all the time and, uh, you know, Places like Google have a lot of offices, really, yeah. really large spaces with lots of people. So there's no shortage of things that robots could help out, help, uh, help out with. And to your point of unstructured environments, maybe we can kind of wind back and um, point out that in order to do unstructured environments and be generalizable, basically at the bedrock of that is machine learning and and learning in general. And uh, it's kind of interesting timing around 2015, 2016, deep learning started coming to robotics as well, a few years after AlexNet. So yeah, maybe you can talk a bit more on what are the main approaches in terms of machine learning and AI that you are pursuing at Everyday Robotics. And we'll dive sure. into papers later, but maybe just yeah, in general yeah. genres. Of course. Yeah, I think the, the the key idea or challenge is that we no two situations that the robot is going to encounter are going to be exactly the same. Um, so, so programming anything explicitly is not going to solve the problem very well. Um, and so it has to be learned in some way, learned from data, learned from experience, and then also learned in a way where it generalizes across examples. And you know that's another description of machine learning. Uh, and so, so it, it makes a lot of sense. And 
for us to be betting on ML actually has sort of different different flavors throughout the system. Some are at this point super established, where you know, especially in perception, you know, how else <laughs> how else would you determine you know if something is a cup or not, right? That's like that that wasn't the case, I think, when we started. If I think think back at you know 2016, where a lot of the stuff was still fairly new. Um, you know, you would still sort of wonder: is, is this even the best way to, to solve that problem? Now we don't, you know, we don't have that discussion anymore. You know, our perception yeah, now, system now it's easy. Is this a cup or not? That's yeah, one of the things I mean, that they're as good at. There's always challenges, yeah. <laughs> especially if you want to get uh, to a few nines and reliability. But um, but it is it is clearly the way to solve this problem. And so yeah. our perception system, you know, takes in different kinds of sensor data, RGB. Uh, depth from stereo lidar and and then produces uh, you know object detection bounding boxes pixel wise segmentation for instance or semantic segmentation and um, tracking of people other objects in, in, in 3d space uh, including their pose and so on so all of these um, outputs of this ml system because this is fundamentally an ml system um, can then be used to to build uh, applications on top that, that solve specific problems. And that ML system is already one where we constantly feed back in new data. So imagine you have a robot, you know, right now we have robots. Um, I mentioned the trash sorting example, we also have them uh, wiping tables in, in cafes and, and cleaning. And every time they do that, that data gets reused as training data in the system in many different ways. And I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on them over time. Some of them uh, in simulation, some of them in, um, in sort of more uh, supervised visual learning context. And, and we, use, we use that data and we train our models and they get better over time with that. So, so that's sort of a well-established part. There are other parts that are more um, out there, <laughs> more, more, uh, more in the, in the Less clear how to do it. Yeah, still. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and we also have a bunch of bets in, in that direction, and especially when it comes to sort of motion and and enacting on the world, you um, we we take in in part sort of a practical approach to this, where you know if you want to have a, a learned system where you where you move your robotic arm, for example, you can have you can try to so it fully end to end. You, know, you get the raw sensor data in, and you take the raw, you know, torque uh, output into the um, you know pixels to torque. But uh, in in that in that scenario, you're putting a lot on your on your network. Like your network has to learn a lot of things, and so quite often we have different action spaces, different state spaces where they're sort of abstracted away from it. So, for example, your your action space could be just Cartesian. Uh, positions uh, in, in 3D space, maybe even constrained, and then we use inverse kinematics to, to translate those into how the robot arm should move. And you know that is a sliding scale uh, on, on both ends. On the on the input end, you could say like, okay, I'm going to use pixels, or maybe I'm going to use uh, processed depth information that already went through maybe another neural network whose job is just to produce uh, a good depth image, uh, and then we use that as an input to a more sophisticated, let's say, reinforcement learning. 
framework, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get to talking about some of the stuff we've been doing there. But so that is that's kind of how we generally think about how machine learning plugs into robotics as building a system that fundamentally gets better with more data and and has sort of this 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 flywheel running. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, we dream of as you interact continuously, you you know learn from your mistakes, which yeah. at a high level is reinforcement learning, but in practice is uh, <laughs> pretty challenging. Uh, and you mentioned, um, you know, all these sensors. So maybe to help out our listeners, can you describe the robotic uh, platforms you work with? Sort of, I, they're not, you know, like humanoid, whatever. So uh, give us a bit of a picture. Of course, yeah. And, um, you know, the best thing is definitely go check out everydayrobots.com with some videos of our robots, uh, the, the latest generation of them. We currently have about 100 of, of these uh a fleet of 100 of these operating in our offices. And, um, and not just in our office, but in a bunch of different buildings. And the, the exciting part is that they, um, you know, they're still prototypes. Um, they're not a finished product, but they're getting quite sophisticated. So they're pretty sophisticated prototypes. Um, and we can do certain things at something that you could start calling scale. Like certainly if you compare it to, to an average robotics lab. And, and so this robot hardware, which we built, uh, designed in-house, uh, um, uh, is uh, a mobile base with a one-armed, uh, it's a one-armed mobile manipulator, which has a gripper at the end, so a two-finger system. It's also modular, so it can pick up or attach different tools. So for example, for, for wiping, wiping tables, we attach sort of a squeegee tool, uh, and um, that similar in tool use for, for, for people, uh, we, we use that same, same principle. But for a lot of cases, the, this two-finger gripper actually works pretty well. We use that for the, for the trash sorting use case and you know, picking up random objects. Yeah, um, that's uh, still what is usually done in, in research, just two fingers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think you know, that's, there are clear limitations with all of this. You know, having one arm is a limitation, having just two fingers is a limitation. For us, it's sort of the challenge of finding that that sweet spot uh, where you you have enough capability from your hardware, but you don't have so much uh, choice that that it gets intractable and that there's so much complexity that you can't handle it. So this is kind of how we we ended up with the current morphology and the current system that we have. There's um, quite a bit of compute on board. Uh, we do a lot of ML inference, of course in real time uh, as we process the, the sensor data. And uh, and we also do quite a bit of it uh, in the cloud. So the robots are, are cloud connected. Um, and you know they, they do mapping, navigation, and then a lot of these manipulation use cases. Um, the, the two that I already mentioned that we talked about is um, you know, trash sorting is, is one example, wiping tables, cleaning in general, opening doors is another which is obviously important if you want to navigate an office building. And then we also do many, many more uh, tasks at a sort of experimental smaller scale. But I think it's really important that tasks that count to me are the ones that we run in daily operations. You know, the ones that run, that are solving a real problem, something that someone wants to have done in the office, and they're doing it continuously every day. That's really where I think 
we can sort of make a difference and, and have like a real impact as opposed to, um, uh, you know, just adding another experiment where you show you can do it once, uh, which mm. is important as a first step, but then, then that's not sort of the, the moonshot to, to crack. And uh, do you already have this, uh, robots continuously operating in, in your offices? We, we have robots uh, operating every day. Yeah, um, that's uh, that's a really important part for us to, you know, get in the habit of uh, operating them, getting to cycles of trying things out, getting feedback, also generating training data, and and using that to make the robots better over time. And so we exercise them in that way. We have robots running every day. Simulation, of course, is another big part in which we scale that to a whole different level. You know, every robot that you operate comes with some overhead. It's a physical thing in the world. You know, gears might break or uh, the, the real world is difficult. Harder is hard. So we do that. But whatever we can do there, we can do many, many more times in, in simulation. So that's a very, very important part of our bet as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, around six months ago, uh, there was uh, this news of um, the robots getting out and cleaning up in these kitchen spaces. And I remember that quite well. You know, at the time, the notion that you already had robots operating, not just in the lab, but in, you know, actual real world settings where other people are you know, for the listeners, maybe this doesn't seem that crazy that you have robots just moving around and cleaning up cafeterias. But this is uh, rarely done, really, just about anywhere. So it's it's really quite significant. Yeah, I think we're really quite lucky to, to be able to do that. And I do think that is one of the puzzle pieces that is needed to, to solve this problem and to, to really make something that works is... You know, self-driving cars, you have to get them on the road and, and drive them. Robots, you have to get them into everyday spaces and, and have them perform tasks um, every day. Yeah. And so, yeah, this news came out uh, six months ago. But by that point, this project has been going, you know, five, five six years. So clearly it took some effort. And uh, maybe we can rewind and just go through on the research end, on the technical end, kind of how that progressed and, and how these individual challenges all built up to uh, this being possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe as a start, um, you know, it's an interesting mix of research and building a product. So how, as a, as a group, do you, what is your process to do that right uh, we it depends on which part of the problem we're, we're trying to, to solve traditionally we're working in this area where a lot of the problems we're having to solve are research problems but we're not a research team mm -hmm. we work really closely with the research team at google especially robotics at google who are a research team in in you know capital r research mm -hmm. And uh, they, they publish uh, papers and, and uh, they, they really move the field forward. We, we partner with them really closely, so closely that, uh, you know, a lot of the times uh, the, the papers that are published have 
joint authorship between our team and, uh, and the team over at Google. And, and we do that in the areas from our end that makes make most sense in you know, moving us closer to our vision of having robots in everyday spaces and having them perform really well. And a lot of this is, well, it comes in different forms, just like uh, earlier when I was describing our, our sort of ML system, it comes in the form of working with a team over at Google that works on uh, depth imaging, learned learned depth. You know, we would we would work with them, uh, which might be coming from an application that is more about augmented reality. Actually, <laughs> coming coming back to that, where you really need that to sort of infer the scene, and you know, we we work with them on that. But then the the bulk of the the collaboration is on uh, with uh, Vincent Van Hook's group at uh, at Google. Uh, robotics at Google to to do learning with robotics in a sort of more end-to-end sense. So some of the work we've done there goes back to, you know, let's say at least 2015, um, whereas this project in its current form kind of existed since 2016. Yeah. Um, and and the, the work that, that happened then was, okay, we have a much more simpler robot at the time, which was just a robotic arm. You might remember this. Some of your listeners might remember this. Uh, so there were a row of robotic arms doing bin picking, you know, a bunch of objects in a bin in front of them. And and what they would, the robots would see with a fixed camera, I think at the time, looking at the bin, RGB, no depth, as far as I can remember. Um, and then the action would be you know, it changed over time, but the one I sort of remember working at some point was was a constrained Cartesian and defector pose and maybe a signal to open and close the gripper. And yeah, so just saying, see, you know, move by 10 centimeters down or left or right or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, actually, I don't remember if it was relative like you describe or if it was absolute, but, you know, you get the point. There's some yeah. sort of position in space that, that uh, was done there. And I think if you go quite further back, there, there was sort of a supervised version of uh, of learning that, which um, which had these these roles of robots, which we started calling robot schools. Today we're calling them robot schools, <laughs> where the robots just keep learning over and over, and we generate data that way. Um, I think there were like eight robots, maybe, and that, that at the time I think was already considered pretty large scale. Uh, we've been able to take that much further since then, but that was an important step to to get more data into this into this problem of learned robotics. Because um, if you remember, you know, the ImageNet revolution, or really all the ML um, revolution was, was partly uh, due, to, due to ImageNet, which, which sort of gave you some scale on, on, on the data and, and you could work on it. And that's one of the fundamental problems in robotics is that you can't just easily have a data set like that. It's a bit more complicated. And so, with these early approaches, you would get to bin picking success rates between like 60 and 80% or something like that. And that is that is cool, especially because it's a new approach, but it's not practical. You know, if you actually wanted to do bin picking, that, that's not enough to, to, to solve real world problems. And so the next approach then was this, this research on QT opt uh, and um, reinforcement learning based uh, grasping, which suddenly things got quite interesting because in mm-hmm. the same setup, uh, at the time, I think we were doing it with these KUKA arms, so still sort of bolted arms bolted to a table, picking from bin in front of them based on RGB inputs. Uh, 
and they were able to run this at a fairly you know high enough uh, closed loop control that you would look at it and see this emergent behavior of okay it's sort of pushing stuff aside and then you know singling out individual objects and picking them up and and you would just look at that and see like okay this there's something really interesting happening here we've just taken robotics from something that is robotic <laughs> to something that feels much more organic and at that time we on our project sort of really said like okay we 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 want to we want to really invest in this much more deeply uh, and, and turn that into a, a capability. Um, and this is in the end what, what if, if I, there are other research projects we should talk about, but, but if I quickly sort of span the arc from that really early one to, to something we have now, um, the, the trash sorting that mm -hmm. we do have is based on this fundamental principle. It is a, a learned capability that is used from reinforcement learning uh, in the real world and in simulation at massive scale, um, where just through data and success failure um, annotations, the robot has learned the skill to, to solve that problem. And I think that's just that's really fascinating uh, as a capability, it's a very different way to, to think about robotics, solving robotics in, in that sense, or it's solving in the sense of I'm going to sit down and tell the robot exactly how to, how to do what and when. So, so that's been very exciting. And that's one of the research projects uh, back then that really inspired us to, to get a lot deeper into uh, machine learning, not just for perception, but for, for motion as well. Mm. Yeah, this is a really key thing about robotics. You can't have this sort of like you just scrape a bunch of images and you get an image net. You know, you at some point need to run the robots and, and collect the data. And at that point, you basically must use reinforcement learning of, you know, you mess up and you figure out why and, and you get better. And so, yeah, jumping back to QtOpt, um, when you were starting with this bin picking problem, and basically the robots started out not knowing to do it, how to do it. And then they, you know, failed to grasp a bunch of stuff. And then eventually they were quite good. Um, yeah. So maybe you can describe a bit more on, you know, how that whole setup was, how much data you wound up collecting and, uh, just kind of what you ended up having. Yeah, I think for the amount of data, I'll have to look at my cheat. <laughs> notes here, but I think in the original project, so the, the, the setup for for these original um, arms was, and you know, ended up collecting around, I think almost a million graphs, maybe like 800,000 or something like that. And it took something like this takes months. So I think a couple mm -hmm. of months in this case, um, using six to 14 robots um, at, at the time. And I think we, over time got, got more efficient, but the, the fundamental problem is still that you do need a lot of data. And especially this still true with reinforcement learning uh, today, that um, it is quite data hungry. And so if you want to learn a skill uh, from uh, from starting from noise, so if your mm -hmm. policy like starts with noise and really has to learn everything just from trial and error, that requires a lot of data. Mm -hmm. And I think there are there are two areas that we could maybe talk a little bit more uh, deeply about to help solve that problem. One of them is 
simulation and particular about how do you use, how do you lower the sim to real gap? How do you leverage simulation in a way where the simulator is really close to the, the real world performance? Because otherwise you end up with something that works really well in simulation, but the moment you try to run it on the real robot, it doesn't work. So you have to solve the, the, the sim to real problem. And we've done some really interesting work there, um, especially with GANs um, that, that I think is super exciting. And the second way to, to address it is um, with um, learning from demonstration, which is less uh, data hungry in, in, in some ways. So, so we're doing that too. Some of the tasks we're, we're operating today are, are based on reinforcement learning, and, and some of them are uh, more based on learning from demonstration. We're also investing sort of bringing those together because we kind of want the best of both worlds. And it's much easier to bootstrap something from either human demonstrations or from, from scripted actions, um, which is often where we start. But, but um, human demonstrations have the, the advantage that they, they come with you know, a, a very positive uh, labeled example. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is one way in which you could do it that, that we think works well. Mm. Yeah, so uh, yeah, we're going to go ahead and jump into some of this more recent work, um, you know, beyond QCAP going into uh, simulation and, and uh, imitation learning. Um, just as an FYI, if listeners are interested about this initial project, uh, Sergey Levine was in a prior episode and shared a lot of fun details. So uh, you can check yeah. that out. So yeah, jumping forward, uh, I think as you said, you moved beyond just pure RL to working on uh, some of these uh, new directions. And I think in particular, you know, one of the more exciting uh, projects wound up being uh, BCZ, mm -hmm. which is uh, zero-shot task generaliz generalization robotic imitation learning. And this is notable because you're using imitation learning and also because now you're not just doing bin peaking, you're actually moving to generalizing. Um, yeah. yeah, so it was maybe, yeah, let's chat a bit about that project and, and how it, let's say, interacts with what you're working on right now. Yeah, BCC is uh, super exciting. Um, and you had Eric Yang on the podcast too, who, uh, you know, is the lead author on that one. And um, I, I don't remember, was that before the publication or after? So I, um, I, I think, I think, you know, he, he would know a lot uh, more of the details, but I can give you like a, the, the rough idea, which is that let's to make it more concrete with a specific task. So let's say you have, um, in this setup also a, a robot it's, uh, standing with a desk in front of it, which has random objects on it. And so the task is, you know, we're moving way past sort of bin picking here. The task is, you know, much broader. You might want to say, okay, move this object from, from here over there, or take this, this, this banana and put it in the green bowl. And, and these are the kind of, uh, kind of tasks you might want to do. So it's getting way more open-ended. And in order to, um, to achieve this, we, um, you know, this is this is done with with our robots, and and a lot of this work is, is I work from from research uh, robotics at Google, and uh, and our team, and they used uh, behavior cloning fundamentally to um, bootstrap 
from human demonstrations in, in this environment to a, a, a learned policy that is language conditioned. So breaking that down a little bit more, um, you would have something like a person, many people training, tell you, directly operating the robot with what we happen to use this, this Oculus controller. Um, you can imagine it, um, like they have this VR controller and it is sort of tied to the robot's end effector. And when you move it, then the robot's end effector moves just like that. And you can press a button to open and close the gripper. And you can imagine how that is a fairly intuitive interface to, to let the robot arm do something um, useful. And then you have some other buttons to, to move the robot's base if you, if you need that as well. And so you use that remote control interface to have the robot perform different tasks. And then you label those tasks. You know, if you just if you put the banana into a bowl, then you just write in English language, put a banana in a, in a bowl. Uh, and, and with that, you create this fairly rich data set that um, allows you to, to, to train this, this language conditioned um, neural network. Uh, so at that time, I think for this paper, they use a fairly basic sentence embedding model, actually. And we can talk about, we should talk about LLMs later and like the whole mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, we'll get that's to coming it. down there. <laughs> yeah. but, but even, even with very simple uh, uh, sentence embedding models, you can now create something where you just tell the robot to uh, a instruction that is in the holdout set or that the robot hasn't, hasn't seen before. Um, like, you know, let's say you've, you've taught it what it means to move something into a bowl. Uh, but you've never told it to move that particular object into that particular bowl. And it's able to um, interpret the, the training data and, and transfer that into, into an, a successful action. But again, that early work, um, forget the exact success rates, but we're still like in sort of the 60 plus percent success rate. So this is quite early work, um, but it is super promising because it, I think language really opens up a, a whole new area of um, you know, really an API for the robot, um, an API for robot actions that is is way more uh, way broader than than a very narrow control interface. It's much more relatable for people because um, you know, we already speak languages, and and this is where we sort of get to the magic of language models. And we should talk about the SACAN work later. Is there seems to be like way more relevant information encoded into these language models that we can then even use for tasks like long horizon planning. And I think that's just super fascinating as well. Definitely, yeah. Language combined robotics is really, has been gaining a lot of ground and SACAN just came out. So uh, mm -hmm. we're gonna chat about it for sure. Uh, just to uh, add, Real quick, if uh, you're interested in BCZ, there's a really fun blog post, uh, Can Robots Follow Instructions for New Tasks? We'll have links to this and other stuff in the description, and you can just Google it and see the Everyday Robotics uh, robot doing a whole bunch of fun, uh, very tasks, and there were like a hundred different tasks, so mm -hmm. quite, uh, quite impressive already. And then, uh, yeah, maybe to jump on the other train that you mentioned, which is simulation and combining simulation with reality to 
be able to do it. And you had several projects working on the symmetrical gap and, and learning to grasp for this uh, sorting, I think, for the trash sorting project. So, yeah, uh, can you describe sort of what has been achieved at Avidi Robotics um, with uh, simulation and, and learning for robotics? Yeah, of course. So with simulation, you know, we t today we use it for a number of really very different use cases. Uh, one is that we're probably focused on the most for now is uh, ML training in, in different shapes and sizes. We also use it for testing, for software development, uh, for hardware development, because you really, what you get is a virtual robot, uh, one that, you know, you you can pretty easily um, uh, wish into existence and multiply by a thousand and one that you don't have to, um, you know, worry about doing anything you don't want to do. So so there's just that that flexibility in, in using simulation for, for a lot of these things. Um, especially on the uh, machine learning part, we... We use it, for example, to bootstrap a lot of these uh, reinforcement learning uh, policies. So imagine you're doing, let's go back to that um, trash sorting task. Let's say you're doing that. What we would often do is we would start the training in the simulation. So there would be a simulated setup with the, the full robot um, and and the, the, the scene, say sort of a, a three bins in front of it and randomized objects that we put in there. And then we just go crazy and, you know, really with thousands of robots um, generate a lot of data and, and bootstrap a policy that way. And the important part is that is still only in simulation. So, so in the end, what you want is a robot that works in the real world. So you could just train something in simulation and then run exactly that policy on the real robot that sometimes, surprisingly, actually works, but most of the time uh, it doesn't work quite as well. Uh, maybe it works a little bit, but but the, the, the metrics aren't, aren't quite there. And so what we would often do is you do that and up to some point, and then you start training with real world data. And uh, and that allows you to get to, to, to higher success rates. Um, and But the, the same thing is still true where the better your simulation, the closer your simulation is to real world, uh, the more the, you can bootstrap, the faster you can bootstrap. And so solving the sim to real problem, the reality gap problem is still very important. And we do this in a number of different ways. I think one important approach is that we're not, we're not writing sort of a physics simulator from scratch. We currently use mostly bullet, use others as well. Uh, but then we combine that, we actually we modify bullet as well. We've added some certain things there over time. And um, we really use that and other tools to, to shape the simulator to the specific robot we have. So it's not sort of a, that the everyday robot simulator is, is very specific to the robots we have on the team. And, uh, and that allows us to, to really sh uh, shrink this, this reality gap because we can fine tune it to the specific hardware we have, the specific use cases we have, and, um, and honestly, to fine tune the performance of it, which is because there's a lot of computation that needs to happen <laughs> if you simulate all the physics uh, and the whole world, and you have to render uh, the camera views and, uh, and all of that. And so and, and we do that and, and create, create a lot more high quality data. 
Yeah, and, and this sim to wheel gap is uh, in large part because we can't simulate things perfectly, right? So the physics are a bit off, especially when you're trying to grasp objects, that contact is mm. really tricky to get right. And then, yeah, you can't render something with computer graphics to look just like in the real world. So if you train just in simulation, you know, your data isn't the same data as in the real world. Uh, and as you said, having a better simulator is certainly part of how you can do that. And it's interesting that you have one. Uh, and then, yeah, maybe, you know, aside from that, uh, what sorts of things do you do for, let's say, the image component? Mm. Yeah, that's where it gets, I think, super exciting, um, where we use the, the uh, we use GANs to create better fake sensor data, essentially. So in particular, when you're simulating um, camera images, you know, what you would typically do is you have some sort of 3D renderer and uh, you, you take your, your virtual world with the environment, the objects, the robot itself, and render that onto a camera frame that, that looks like the kind of camera uh, image you would get on your robot. And then, then you have a choice. You could sort of throw a lot of compute data. You, you could do ray tracing and get like a you know, super high quality uh, image. It takes a lot of resources. You um, could also do lower fidelity rendering. And that actually gets you surprisingly far because um, a lot of these networks don't really seem to care that much about uh, the, the, the fidelity they're able to extract relevant information somehow and look over the fact that you know you have jagged edges and uh, and the colors aren't quite right and your illumination is too uniform. But then, as you try to get into realms where you really want to get to high quality, it starts to, to matter. And and so what we do is uh, we we've experimented with a number of different uh, generative adversarial networks to translate simulated images into real-world images and the other way around. We also had some in the past to sort of create something that's neither real nor simulated, sort of a canonical one. But I think the most promising ones are those that in the end uh, translate a simulated image into a real one and then just present that translated real image to, uh, to the robot in simulation. And that really, really boosts um, uh, success rates on these tasks that you're training. And I think the, the papers and research that was published in that area, I think the, the two uh, uh, worth mentioning here is first RL CycleGAN and then RetinaGAN. I think RL CycleGAN is interesting because it's, it's, so it's based on the CycleGAN idea. So you have a, um, a network. <laughs> it's a funny thing. I think the best way to, to explain GANs is always with this, you draw this one image with all the boxes. <laughs> in the podcast, so I'm going to try my, try my best to, to, to do that in words. But mm -hmm. essentially, you have two domains. You have the simulated images. You have the real-world images. And you, you train a neural network that uh, translates uh, one into the other. Uh, but you do it both ways because then you can add an additional loss that compares translating a real image into a simulated one into a real image that should be very close. And now you have a loss. And you and can do that twice. That's, that's a cycle, right? Exactly. And that's a cycle. And you could do that twice, depending on which one you start with. And so now you're getting a bunch of different losses that you can add onto to your um, to your network and optimize for and do your do your thing, do your gradient descent, and, and get something that ends up being pretty close um, to, to this data. Mm -hmm. So sort of pixel-wise um, 
translation. Um, and the idea with RL cycle again was like, what if we do that, but we do it sort of task specific. So let's say we have a reinforcement learning task, let's say uh, trash sorting, and we formulate a loss on top of that that is actually related to how well you're doing at your task. So did you pick up an object correctly? Did you, whatever your reward function is within that RL task, that becomes uh, one loss, meaning the, the GAN network learns to translate simulated images into real images in a way that preserves those details that matter for the RL policy. And uh, at the same time, it doesn't care so much about those details that don't matter to the policy at all. Uh, and that really makes a difference. Um, uh, so that, that was a really, really promising, um, promising work at first. It has one, one big downside, which is that it is quite task-specific. You know, that's the whole idea. You sort of add that RL loss in there. Um, and so the, the, the next one we did was, was Retin again. And uh, what, you, what you do there is you have another, you have a cycle consistency loss. It's, it's also a cycle again. But then you add this perception consistency loss. You basically say you, you run something like object detection with RetinaNet, hence the name. You do some object detection on the original image and then on the um, on the translated image, and then you compare your uh, where your your bounding boxes are and uh, and if they which which classes they assign, and and then now you have another loss. You can say I want what what I want to optimize for here is that if I can detect objects well in one image, I should be able to detect them pretty much exactly as well in the other image. Uh, and, and that works really well. And the, the advantage for that uh, of that is that you, you can use a task agnostically. You, know, you can use that same thing for one task or another. It's not tied to a specific um, RL loss. And so I, uh, we, we've been using that a lot. And I should say with, with all of this research work, this is, this is always in, in collaboration with, uh, with research at Google, uh, robotics at Google. Yeah. So yeah, it sounds like I would presume to do some of the stuff that you're doing continuously, uh, especially with trash sorting, this research is already deployed in, in practice. And, you know, you probably learn in simulation to some extent and also use this sim to real approaches to be able to deploy it. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think when we, when we do, Take a task like uh, like trash sorting, and that is learned with reinforcement learning. That is that is how we deploy that, and in uh, in our in our real use cases and in our real environments, we we deploy that policy. Not everything our robots do works this way. Um, we have a lot of tasks which um, are sort of done the more traditional way, where you uh, program the robot more explicitly. But um, you know, as soon as something wor something works, we <laughs> We, we really use it. Yeah, and, and this is really exciting because it's one thing to demonstrate something in a lab and another thing to actually deploy it. And really, there's not been too many use cases of ORL getting out in the, into the real world robotics. So it's it's always cool to see. Yeah. And then, yeah, now jumping forward to the most recent work, which is really exciting, SACAN, I think it it just was announced a couple of weeks ago. 
Uh, and as you said, this is connected to this other trend in AI of uh, language models. So things like GPT-3 that basically, in some sense, you know, understand language. They can parse sentences and understand jokes and a lot of these kinds of things. And, you know, language, one of the issues, it's not grounded. It doesn't see the world, it doesn't move around. But there have been ways to connect it to robotics or starting to be ways. So maybe you can uh, let the listeners know pretty much what SACAN is and, and how it mm -hmm. works. Yeah. So let's set the scene first. You know, the environment that, that this, this work uh, in the SACAN paper uh, operates is, is a, you know, we have these, these kitchens at work. Um, so there's like tables and objects and um, you, you have a robot, one of our robots in that environment, and now you want it to do something, but you don't want to be very explicit uh, about um, having to tell it, okay, first drive over here, then raise your arm, then reach your arm out. So you don't want to be explicitly controlling it that way. Wouldn't it be great if you could just tell it in a very high level natural language command what to do, or even better, just describe your problem. <laughs> and it figures out the steps that it needs to get somewhere. And so. It, SACAN paper uh, does is that it says, okay, let's assume the robot has a bunch of atomic capabilities. Uh, let's say it knows what picking an object in front of it uh, uh, means. It knows how to um, drive to a certain spot. Uh, if you tell it drive there, um, then, then it can do that. So we sort of abstract that away. We say, however that is done, as long as we have a value function associated with it, um, we can um, we can use it in this framework. So value function here is assigning um, a value to to the current state with respect to the goal. So my current state, let's simplify the state is just the RGB image of what the robot sees right now. And um, as long as you have something that can can assign how how likely it is to to get from from this state to your to your goal. Um, then, then you can use that task. So that's one part. The, the other part is how do you how do you get to your eventual goal from from where you are right now? And so the one of my favorite examples in that paper is I think the the phrase is just something like I spilled my can of coke. Uh, can you help me throw it away? And uh, and so you ask a large language model. To, to rate different phrases that describe these atomic actions uh, with respect to which one of those would be most useful to do right now um, in order to get to, to my end goal. And then you combine that with the value function of what my current state is. And by, with this through this combination, you can, you can rank all the different atomic actions that you could do in this very moment. And, you just, and then you just repeat that. You ask the language model, what should I be doing in this state? You you, um, you ask your value function if this is uh, in the right direction, basically. And what happens is just by saying something like, oh, I spilled my can of Coke. Can you help me with that? The robot ends up saying, okay, that, that means I'm going to drive over there. I'm going to pick up the can. I'm going to drive to the trash can. I'm going to put it in the trash can. I'm going to drive over there to pick a sponge, take that sponge over to you. And, and start wiping. Um, 
so that that's kind of mind blowing to me. <laughs> Again, this is this is kind of uh, this is still early um, work in that direction, but it shows a couple of really important things. I think one, it shows that large language models are able to do long horizon planning, like they're somehow inherent in uh, in that structure. You're able to to decompose tasks into their subtasks, and um, and the other thing is that you, it, it was so funny, this was announced just a couple of weeks ago, but in that same week, there was a bunch of other large language model news. Like in the same week, uh, DALI 2 was announced, right? And um, and also the uh, Palm new, a very large language model from, from Google. And so all the, all the trends there are still pointing pretty straight upwards. So the capabilities of large, large language models are still getting getting bigger. And even I think in the SACAN work, the, the model that was used isn't even like the, the most sophisticated one yet. I think you probably wouldn't have seen a big difference because we're still only looking at a bunch of different atomic tasks. But imagine you're, the tasks you can do are sort of, um, you know, in the hundreds and the thousands, then you're going to start to, to really leverage the capabilities of these, of these very large language models. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's it's quite interesting because in robotics, one of the key challenges is you're solving, you know, a lot of things. You're solving perception, you're solving uh, movement, just, you know, touching objects, picking up objects. And then one of the even harder challenges is just planning, as you said, which is just decision making. Like, how do you do the thing you're supposed to do? And at that point, if you really want to generalize, you basically need some form of common sense, right? Like us humans can figure out, okay, this is what I would want to do now. But um, this is, you know, common sense is a pretty high level of intelligence. And so, yeah, it's really exciting to see that maybe language models trained purely on text can have some sense, some of this common sense. And then in SACAN, you show how you can connect it to a robot that knows how to look in front of it and know what's possible and not possible and sort of, you know, take what the language model spits out and, and uh, tune it to also match the image and the real world. And um, yeah, and now you can do like over a hundred tasks, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, th I think in your paper, you're all of us around this kitchen doing like 10, 12 steps. Uh, which is a huge leap for anyone who doesn't do robotics from what has been the case. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's super exciting. Yeah, so um, yeah, we got to pretty much <laughs> uh, you know a few weeks ago. So that's a summary, I guess. Maybe uh, jumping back from the research, uh, I don't know if you can reveal too much, but you know, um, what is the current hope or, or current objective for what your robots can do in the offices so they can you know, help out in the cafeteria and uh, sort trash. What do you think might be possible, you know, in terms of number of tasks and maybe new types of tasks? Yeah, I think in, in the end, so we're operating a couple of different tasks related to, to, to cleaning and, um, uh, and, inspection in, in offices today. 
We're still also building out a lot of fundamentals. For example, a capability like being able to open doors. You know, it's a pretty good bet that you know you're just going to need that if you navigate in your office or in your home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's a lot of that that fundamental uh, work happening. You know, when it comes to you know how many or which specific tasks, I think first of all, like counting counting tasks has a little bit of this fractal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Because you know, depending on how you count it, it's it's uh, you know orders of magnitude more or less. But um, the, the main point that I would say is to, to sidestep that is, what do we need the robot to do? What actually mm-hmm. delivers value to someone who uh, who's to, to the people in the office or, or eventually in homes? And you know, we've we've identified some of these cases, some of which we've, we've talked today. We're going to be identifying others. We're going to be changing that over time. I think we're, you know, we're really building um, something here that uh, that is a business and that that ends up solving real world problems. And we're going to do that. Uh, we are already doing that based on uh, machine learning in in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically solve the problems that need solving and uh, really pushing the boundaries of what's possible using some of this research in collaboration with Google Research and Google Robotics. Um, yeah, so I know as an robotics researcher, when, when some of these details came out, I was really impressed and uh, looking forward to seeing uh, what you can do. And uh, just to wrap up, I think, you know, really interesting to talk about everyday robotics, but um, we can switch tracks a bit and just talk about some of your other interests. Uh, sure. If, yeah. if anybody Googles your name, it's actually really interesting to go on your site and see that on top of everyday robotics, you have all these other projects. Uh, so yeah, what, what are the other things you'd like to explore? Yeah, I, sh- I should say these are all small projects. Like, you know, at my day job, I do things that you know need, need large teams and and solve really hard problems. These smaller projects are a little bit my escape to to actually write some code and <laughs> build some <laughs> build some hardware and software end to end and being able to, to sort of own the whole project. Just and, something um, that's not a moonshot. That's something that's not a moonshot and something that, that, that I can do over a weekend or, or something like that. And I've done, you know, little, you know, devices around the home and things like that. Maybe the, maybe the one project that's, that's most relevant for, for this audience too is a recent one uh, around, uh, which actually involved large language models. I, I've been playing around with um, uh, philosophy and, and large language models actually have two projects on that one which I haven't published yet <laughs> uh, and another one which I have which is called uh, Wittgenstein 2022 and so the idea was okay Wittgenstein Ludwig Wittgenstein the philosopher wrote this this one work the Tractatus uh, and and has all these philosophical phrases in there which have a very distinctive character and I was like hmm, could I use GPT-3 to just like write more of those and it was interesting because it's it's not you know, at first I started playing with the GPT-3 playground, the OpenAI playground, and you can put some text in, but, you know, it's a whole book. And, and so I ended up using the, the fine-tuning API that that they have to, to, to fine-tune GPT-3 on, on this whole book and then produce new sentences. And it's kind of funny because you start to, 
explore the limitations of these large, large language models. You, you see the capability, which is like style-wise on like text and down to spelling, it's really spot on. Um, but then sort of conceptually, like logically, there are often like complete contradictions, obvious contradictions and, and things that are just plain wrong. I, I have a, a you know, tendency to believe that that's actually going to change as, as we scale these large language models. And there, you know, especially in the Palm research that came out recently, there's sort of interesting um, uh, analysis to, to that end. You mentioned the explaining jokes one, right? Sort of that, that's a capability that previous generations wouldn't have been able to. And while that isn't like super critical, I think it, it points in the right direction. And so, yeah, on this project, I made a little website where if you go to Wittgenstein.app, you can uh, you can get your uh, generate new phrases, and it's it's most it's kind of like a art project, fun fun side project. I actually made this late last year, uh, partly when I when I caught COVID, <laughs> I was, <laughs> uh, stuck at home, and uh, and and finally did this. I had this idea in my mind for for a while. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So we'll link to that. Check it out if you want to read some uh, AI-generated philosophy. Exactly. Wittgenstein is uh, an interesting one to read. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that might be a lot of fun. Yeah, and it, it gets pretty deep pretty quickly too because you start to think about okay, what what is meaning even? You know, when I, when I'm reading Wittgenstein, I do a lot of interpretation of these these phrases, and I try to think what he like meant by it. Mm-hmm. And you're noticing, like, well, I, I'm putting that same work into trying to interpret these these character sequences that that GPT three contributes. And so, so who's actually like, how much work am I doing as a reader of this anyway? <laughs> how, yeah. much, how much work is <laughs> so? Uh, you know, it's it's all it's all really fun and games. I'm not a philosopher, and you know, uh, uh, I. Probably I'm sure a philosopher <laughs> could write an essay about the implications of this yeah. project in terms of Wittgenstein's philosophy, which is connected to language. And, so, and that, exactly, it's very self-referential. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so it's cool to see there are some just projects for fun and not you know, solving some big world problem. Yeah, yeah. Alrighty, well, I think we'll finish up with that. That was a really fun interview, really interesting to me. So thank you again, Max, for taking the time. Cool. Thank you so much. It was really great being here. And just to do our usual outro, uh, again, this is the Gradient Podcast. It is associated with thegradient.pub, a magazine where we publish articles by AI researchers and just uh, people in the AI space. If you enjoyed the interview, as always, you can put a review on Apple or share it or just listen to it twice, you know, uh, whatever you feel like. So thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to our future interviews.